Well, good evening. Happy New Year. Tonight we are going to be picking back up on our series entitled Passing on the Faith. And if you recall, back way back in November, we began, well, we put a pause on our series walking through the, the pastoral epistles, the book of, books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so tonight we're going to be picking back up that series and we'll find our passage tonight in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to that passage. You can find that on page 1188 in your pew Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Now, as a reminder, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter to his beloved son in the faith, his beloved disciple, Timothy. And Paul's writing this letter within the confines of prison. He's in a prison cell knowing that he is nearing the end of his life. So while Timothy is, uh, Paul, Paul's in prison, Timothy is away ministering to a church, the church there in Ephesus, a church that the Apostle Paul himself actually planted. And throughout the book of 2 Timothy, if you recall, we get glimpses of the love that Paul has for Timothy. Right? We have seen Paul call Timothy to bold faith, to persevering in the faith, to endure throughout his gospel ministry. And then we get to chapter 2, and it is there that Paul begins to exhort Timothy on how to deal with false teachers, false teachers who are influencing his flock. And so if you look back in the last verses of chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to deal with these false teachers with gentleness and peace. Look there with me if you have your Bibles open in verses, starting in verse 24. Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul's encouraging Timothy that prayerfully these false teachers will turn from their ways. Now, if you could read this and see that perhaps as a sign of weakness, but this is by no means a sign of weakness. Because while Paul is prayerful that these false teachers would turn and repent, in tonight's passage, we see him essentially doubling down on just how serious these issues of false teaching really are, how evil these heresies really are in the church. And so with that in mind, hear God's word this evening from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, 
unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, would you soften our hearts and our minds and our eyes? Would you, oh Lord, give us ears to hear your word? Would you change our hearts and grow us tonight in godliness? Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Wonder if the name Ralph Teeter means anything to you. My guess is probably not. But Ralph Teeter has had a profound impact on your life. In the 1940s, Teeter was a very talented mechanical engineer. He's actually blind from an accident at a very young age, and yet he attended college and became a mechanical engineer. And he was riding in the car one day with his lawyer. And as he was riding, he became irritated with the fact, 1940s, that the car continued to lurch forward and backwards and start and stop. And so Teeter decided he needed to do something about it. Maybe you're elbowing your spouse right now. It's like riding with you. If my wife was here, she would wink or wave at me. But here's the thing. Ralph Teeter is credited for inventing what we now know as cruise control on your vehicle. Told you he impacted you. Cruise control, we all love it. Chances are if you hit the interstate out here, the minute that you get on I-20, right? You get to your desired speed and do what? Click that button. You set that cruise control and you relax your foot and you sit back and you get comfortable to enjoy your ride. Maybe you have a newer vehicle and it has the radar sensor on your cruise control, right? So you can set how close you can get to the car in front of you or how far away and it makes you even more relaxed and more content and more at ease as you drive. Now, mine has been broken for some years now, but inevitably I still get in and I hit that button driving down the road, hopeful that maybe, just maybe, it will turn on. The cruise control is a wonderful invention, and it does make driving a bit more relaxing and a bit more enjoyable. And yet, if we're honest, it's a modern convenience that leaves room 
for us to become a bit more distracted, a bit more carefree, and even take some of the work and some of the attention that we need to pay to the road off and out of our driving. And I think if you think about cruise control in your car, if we're honest with ourselves tonight, there's something about that that many of us long for that same convenience in life as well, don't we? Cruise control. Right? We desire, we have this deep desire to get to this desired place or status in life, to get into the right college, to get into the right group of friends, to find the right job or the right spouse, the right amount of money in our bank account, the right neighborhood. And the desire can be to set the cruise control, to sit back and relax. And yet it's the very thing that the Apostle Paul tonight is warning us against. That in the Christian life, there is no cruise control, as it were. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that as leaders and as followers of Christ, we need to understand that there is much at stake. And to think that cruise control can be an option is just out of the question in a Christian life. And there's three things that I want us to look at tonight, three things that Paul is warning Timothy against tonight, and he's warning us as well. The first is the expectation of difficulty. The second is the explanation of difficulty. And the third is the exposure, I did it, three E's, exposure of difficulty. Three E's. First, look with me at the text, expectation of difficulty. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. But understand this. Paul begins with this emphatic statement. It's as if Paul's saying, Timothy, look, I know I've told you this before, but in case you missed it, I'm saying this again. But understand this, Timothy. He is emphasizing the state of current affairs where Timothy is ministering. It's not some fleeting moment. This is not some past event. But Timothy, Paul says, this is how things are now. And we know that because of what he says next. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty in the last days. What does he mean here when he says, but in the last days? Well, I think it could be easy for us to think that these are the days immediately that precede the second coming of Christ. Right? That, it, that this is something that's about to happen right before the return of Christ. But remember when this was written some 1900 years ago. So we know that that's not what Paul meant by in the last days. The phrase in the last days here and throughout the New Testament is a phrase that refers to the time between 
the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The, the time period between Christ's first return and his second time. So Timothy was living in the last days. And so are we. And I think that's an important reminder for us because no doubt many a televangelist has made a good and yet tragic living of using modern current events to try and predict the second coming of Christ. Even recent events within the Middle East no doubt have sparked lots of people predicting that they know what's going to happen and that these are the last days, meaning these are the days right before Christ's return. And so I think it's a helpful reminder for us this evening. And it's helpful for us to understand that what Paul is describing is not some future event. But what Paul is laying out is the current state of the world that Timothy was living in. And it's the same for us as well. And so he says, in the last days, what? There will come times of difficulty. That word used for difficulty in the Greek, in the classic Greek, is used to describe a wild animal or raging seas. It's actually used only one other time in the New Testament. And you find it in Matthew 8 when Jesus is dealing with the two men who are demon-possessed, who were so unhinged that no one could pass them by. And Paul says, Timothy, that, that's the root of what it is. And so Paul says, Timothy, expect difficulty, this kind of craziness, this kind of unhingedness. Expect difficulty. Timothy, don't expect to be able to put it on cruise control. Don't expect that the world and its influences won't find its way into the church. In his commentary about this passage, John Calvin writes that Paul's warning shows us that until Christ's return, evil and wickedness will always be present. And he goes on to write that the problem is not just of them out there, but it's one present within the walls of the church and within the body of Christ as well. Therefore, Paul says, there's no time for idleness. Friends, what a reminder for us tonight. It's one of the things, I'm sure I stole it from somebody who told me long ago, but expectations are everything. It's the truth, isn't it? Expectations are everything. When we expect an easy road and it turns out to be difficult, we can quickly get discouraged, compounded by the fact that we thought it was going to be easy in the first place. It becomes all the more difficult. Not only can we get discouraged, but we feel like we've been tricked, we've been hoodwinked. I thought this was supposed to be easy. It's one of the things that I try to include in every single marriage homily and marriage ceremony that I do, I remind couples that marriage is glorious and marriage is beautiful and marriage is amazing. But when you put two sinful people together in holy matrimony and you put them under the same roof and you put them in the same bed 
that you are going to have some unholy moments as well. And the marriage is difficult. It is glorious. And yet it is a challenge and difficult as well. And I think one of the interesting things about that is when I, when I share that with the couple, people always come up to me afterwards and then go, I'm so glad you said that. You didn't stand up there and tell them that it was just going to be rainbows and roses. Right? And we expect this from the outside world. Look at the world. Look at the news. You read the news or you follow it, however you follow the news, if you can stomach it. And so often, so much of what we read is toxic. And yet here, Paul is not just talking about the people out there. But he's talking about the dangers which lurk inside the church as well. The message of the gospel and the message of Christianity is not that we have an easy road. In fact, we're promised that it will be difficult, that it will be challenging, that life inside the church will be difficult. Friends, the message of the gospel is not that it's easy. The message of the gospel is that we are not alone, is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, that he lived the perfect life on our behalf. And when we become united to Christ in faith, that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are not alone, and that we are become part of a family of faith where we have brothers and sisters beside us to encourage us as we walk our Christian journey. And so Paul says to Timothy, expect difficulties from the world, but expect difficulties in the church. It's point number one. Now moving to point number two. Then he begins to explain the difficulties. He does it in two ways. This list of characteristics that we see here, and then he shows a real tangible example. So first I want us to look at that list together. Paul continues in verse 2 with this list of 19 characteristics of not just the world, but of false teachers seeking to infiltrate the church. And if you read that list, as I was reading that list, and this week I was joking with Mike in the office earlier before we prayed, I said, I feel like Jerry Falwell. Some of you will get old Jerry, not young Jerry, but you read this list and you, some of you are laughing because you totally get it, but um, you read this list. And it's characteristics, not just of the world, but of false teachers seeking to infiltrate the church. And his purpose, the, the, the Paul's purpose in listing this is to explain, here's what the difficulty is going to be, Tim, Timothy. Specifically, the nature of, the, of these false teachers. This is who they are. And this is the seriousness of the injury that they are causing to the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, be aware. This is who you're dealing with. And we don't have time to look at all 19 of them. And this list is by no means exhaustive, but I do want to point out a few of them for us this evening. Look at the first one. Paul says in verse 2, For people will be lovers of self. In Matthew 22 when asked, what are the two greatest commandments? How does, what does Jesus say? Love God and love what? People. And love 
your neighbor. And here Paul begins his list, noting that these false teachers and these people are demonstrating that their true love is not God. And their true love is not God's people. But they are lovers of themselves. In many ways, if you read this list, all of those characteristics stem out of that one character trait, lovers of themselves. But next he goes on, he says, they're lovers of money, they're materialistic. We saw this back in 1 Timothy as well. Friends, the prosperity gospel is alive and well, and there's sadly many who have bought into the lie that God wants you to be healthy and happy and wealthy. A total contradiction from what Paul says here in the beginning. Expect difficulty. So we need to be aware that that is a motivation of those who seek to bring disruption to the church. As I said, we can't go through them all, but you go down the list and you see, then he says, disobedient to their parents. Now, maybe you think that's a strange one to add in, right? Like, pretty bad list. Disobedient to parents? Well, you're exactly right. These are people living in direct violation of the fifth commandment. But if you begin to tease that out more, what you have is a symptom of something way deeper and much larger. It's a community and a society that rejects proper authority. And so the message is one that states, live your own truth. Live your own freedom. You don't have to respect the authorities in your life. And when we see this in our society, and sadly in our churches as well, we see it happen from time to time where the question of the authority of the church, what authority should the church have in my life? Who are you, church, to tell me how to live my life? You're just this toxic society. And sadly, we see it infiltrating the church as well. If you skip down to verse 4, we see Paul says they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look, I, I didn't make this list up on my own. But friends, if you look at the world around us, the world in which we live, a world that is constantly saying, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel good. Live your own truth. Live your own reality. It's oh so clear and oh so present in the world in which we live. But again, it's not just a problem with the world out there, but it's a problem. And there are those in the church who view God as the same way, that God is not the end, but God is a means to an end, that the end is our own personal happiness. That it's about us and our pleasure. And so they seek to use God to fit their personal narrative. 
And then Paul concludes his list and he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. As one commentator puts it, the false teachers here are pious frauds, for they appear godly, and their aesthetic teachings may seem like practical wisdom, but the outward appearance is nothing but a mirage. They know nothing of the life-changing power of the true gospel, of the pursuit of authentic Christian godliness. And so Paul says, Timothy, do what? Timothy, what's your application? Paul says, avoid such people. Have nothing to do with them. Now, I think we need to be clear. Paul's not saying don't engage your non-Christian neighbors. That's not the message that he's saying. Remember what we read at the beginning in in chapter 2, where he says, correcting with gentleness that God may grant repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. So he's not saying don't engage them. He's not even saying don't engage them winsomely. Because on the one hand, we are to be loving and engaging. But on the other hand, we are called to recognize that the enemy is real. That there is a spiritual battle being waged around us. And it's not just the world around us. It's in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, and within the church and the body of Christ itself. And it's a serious battle that causes serious damage. Paul's saying we can't just set it on cruise control. We can't be an ostrich that just sticks its head in the sand. Maybe you've seen those videos before of an ostrich when it's scared right? This huge bird. And it gets scared. It just buries its head in the sand like, (laughs) if I can't see you, you can't see me. Paul says you can't be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist and it's not real. We must engage. And so he gives us this list as an explanation of who these false teachers are. But then he He shows us how it plays out. Look with me at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray with various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Here Paul describes the tactics of these teachers. If you recall, the early church met in homes. Oftentimes these were homes that belonged to wealthy and middle-class women. In fact, that's how the gospel began to spread in the early church. And Paul's not saying that these women weren't intelligent, but what he is saying is that they hadn't been thoroughly established in spiritual truth. And so they made easy targets. And so most commentators think what Paul is referencing is that while their husbands would have been away at work, these false teachers would have entered homes and would have taken advantage of these ladies over time, filling their minds with false teaching, luring them away from the truth. 
And so Paul says, watch out, these are their tactics. And then he moves away from their tactics and he describes the false teachers again. He says, just as Janus and Jambres, Jambres, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, those names, Janus and Jambres, don't appear in the Old Testament. But here is Paul is referencing the, the magicians of Pharaoh that Moses engaged in Exodus chapter 7. Right? That, that imitated the same signs, similar signs that Moses did as well. If you recall from Exodus 7, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh just as the Lord commanded. What does Aaron do? He throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. And then those magicians, Pharaoh summons them and their staffs become serpents as well. And Paul says, in the same way that Janus and Jambres deceive Pharaoh, these false teachers are doing the same in Paul and Timothy's day as well. And it's no different in our day either. They're deceivers. Which leads me to my third point. Look at the last verse. He doesn't leave us there. He exposes the difficulty. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was to those two men. You know, the picture that Paul's painting is a sobering picture. Expect difficulty. Right? And then there's this promise at the end. It's a drab picture. You read this and you're like, oh my gosh, this is heavy. And it should be. It should be sobering. It should be heavy to us. And yet here we have this promise, but they will not get very far. In verse 12 of Exodus 7, it says this, For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Do you remember that? Aaron's staff becomes a snake and then he kills those other two snakes that are there. I get it. It's creepy to think about that whole thing transpiring, right? But the point is, is that God wins. Calvin writes that as the truth of God prevailed against those magicians, so he promises that the doctrine of the gospel shall be victorious against errors as well. Friends, that's good news this evening. In spite of difficult circumstances and difficult truth, the message of the gospel will prevail. God's truth prevails and we are called to cling to that truth. We know how it ends. Jesus wins. And so do we. As I close this out tonight, I want us to think about, hopefully this is a sobering passage where you go, wow, these people are trying to infiltrate the church. So what do I do with this? How am I supposed to respond? Well, first, as pastors, as elders, as leaders, as a congregation, there is no cruise control. 
Elders, what a reminder that shepherding a flock is messy, but it is also dangerous work. It does not allow for us to sit back and do nothing. We're called to be on guard, to engage non-believers, but we're called to protect our flock from false teaching as well. We're called to raise up our families and to come alongside our people and shepherd them as well. But not just elders and our pastors, really for all of us. Are there any areas of your spiritual life where you're hitting cruise control? Where you're sitting back? Maybe you feel like I've made it. I'm good. I'm relaxing. Prayer, Bible study, corporate worship, small group, fellowship, whatever it is. Spend some time this week. I would encourage you, spend some time reflecting on your life. Where are areas that you may be in cruise control that you don't even know yet? Ask God to give you a plan this new year. Number two, what are you doing to lead yourself in this new year spiritually, specifically regarding God's Word? I've heard it said that those tasked with spotting counterfeit currency spend a majority of their time studying the real thing. And they spend so much time studying the real thing that when a counterfeit bill does pass across their desk, they're able to immediately spot it and immediately identify it because they know the real thing. Do you have a plan to study God's Word for yourself this new year? Are you leading yourself to study God's truth so that when false doctrine comes your way, you're able to identify it? Years ago, I heard a, a sermon from an old African-American pastor, E.V. Hill. And he talked about reading the Bible to his grandmother as a young boy. And he says, if I st ever stumbled over a part or I accidentally missed something, she would stop me. And she would say, wait a minute, that's not right. He said, she would look at me and say, that don't sound like God. And he would immediately realize his mistake and correct it. And she would go, that's right. That sounds like God. Carry on. Are you able to tell when something doesn't sound like God? When something doesn't measure up to God's word? If not, let me encourage you to start off this new year with a Bible reading plan. If you need help finding one, we would love to help you think through that and talk through how we can help you set yourself up for success in this new year. And the last one is this. I would encourage you to guard your use and guard who you follow on social media and technology. Listen, the internet and social media are wonderful tools, but they have the ability to lead us astray as well. And you're scrolling. I'm not just talking about sexually or, or pornography. I'm talking about doctrinally. You can begin to watch things. And I've seen it happen on my own feed and seeing people who I grew up with or went to college with that all of a sudden they are beginning to 
to spout theology that's dangerous, and theology that's bad, and the theology that will lead you astray, the theology that maybe starts off sounding good, but the end is dangerous. And so I would encourage you, be mindful of what you're intaking. False teaching that sounds really good still leads us to destruction. May the Lord bless us in this new year. May the Lord grant that we become a people committed to godliness, growth in godliness, growth in his word, and able to identify falsehood, call it where it is, and stand for truth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you... Do that in our hearts and in our lives, in our church, in our families this year. Would we become a people committed to your truth, a people deeply committed to your word, a people unashamedly willing to stand for the truth and stand for the gospel, a people willing to engage those who are lost Father, would you grow us? If there are areas of cruise control in our spiritual lives, would you wake us from our slumber and give us a sense of urgency? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.